this is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this episode is entitled Art is a Wound Turned into Light. I have a story for y'all. <laughs> I want to dive into it. We, we've been doing that, haven't we? Just diving right in. No housekeeping. So great. Let's just go for it. Um, yeah. So I want to tell you a story about the way that I have been wounded around artistry. I talk a lot about art as medicine, about art as a quality of living. Um, I talk about the ways that capitalism has kind of hijacked artistry and has narrowly defined it as this beautiful object that is made by a professional. Of course, of course, art could absolutely be that, right? And art is so, so, so much more. And I realized... A couple weeks ago when some stuff went down over here in Austin in my life, I've never talked to y'all about the ways that I've been really hurt around artistry. I've talked about ways that students have been hurt, the ways that they've shown me that they've been hurt, the ways that um, people in my life, professionally, through education, personally or otherwise, have expressed to me, you know, that they're not artists, that they shouldn't be artists. Like I talk about that stuff. And it wasn't until a few weeks ago that I realized I've never shared this story. And it's the perfect time because it is in my space. It's in the forefront of my consciousness. And I want to tell it to you. So when I was 12... (laughs) Don't all interesting stories start like this? <laughs> when I was a hormonal preteen, <laughs> I was in gym class, y'all. <laughs> I mean, can, can we just admit or can we acknowledge that we could stop the story right there and all of us could conjure up an incredibly compelling story of drama because I don't know anybody that has an experience from junior high gym class that is unicorns and rainbows. (laughs) So it's 1992, seventh grade gym class. And this particular year, my school got a new gym teacher. She was probably in, you know, right, right out of college, mid 20s, super energetic, full of ideas. And she had what I imagine she thought was like a pretty brilliant and creative idea, right? Like instead of begrudgingly dividing people up into teams <laughs> to do like some awkward, god awful round of volleyball where only like three people know how to play, <laughs> she, she, thought wouldn't it be cool if I divide up these kids into groups and have them create their own choreographed dance to a song of their choice 
I mean, like, honestly, even just saying that out loud, it kind of sounds cool, right? And maybe if something like that was being, you know, created for a group of willing adults who were like paying for the privilege of doing something like that, it would be great. But it wasn't. It was for 12 year olds who were all of us, even the ones that were relatively comfortable in their bodies, for all of us doing something like this was mortifying. Um, not necessarily for the project itself, you know, but for the fact, the simple fact that we were all then tasked with performing this thing in front of our peers for a grade. I, and maybe, and it's very possible, like disclaimer given right now, it's very possible that I'm over-exaggerating because of my very limited experience. Like I didn't, you know, <laughs> I didn't research this. I didn't like talk to all of the people in the class or I haven't like <laughs> spoken with like large numbers of seventh graders about something like this. So it's very possible that you're listening to this right now and you're like, that's cool. I wish we would have done something like that at 12 years old. Great. Very, very, very valid. <laughs> but most of us, I think, I think the people that would view a project like that would tend to be in the minority, right? Like most of us go through this very seminal 12-year-old experience of feeling very awkward in the world in every conceivable level, <laughs> you know? Thankfully, I remember like immediately like grasping the few girlfriends in the class I had, like, please, oh my God, let me be in your group, you know? It, and was so relieved to at least have that going for me. And so we get together and we have to, you know, we have to do this outside of class, right? So I immediately offer, there was a decent number of girls in my group that were neighborhood friends. And I said, hey, why don't you guys come to my house? We can practice there. And I'll never forget the day that we first initiated this sort of planning. We were on my parents' back porch, was like screened in. Um, my mom made us snacks. It was going to be, you know, like a little less mortifying than I initially thought. And there were a couple girls in the group that were really assertive. They had ideas. I was more than okay <laughs> with letting them take the reins because I didn't personally have any choreographed ideas, but I also love to dance. Like I loved to dance. By the time I was 12, I had this really insatiable love of hip hop music, right? Like the early nineties was the golden age of hip hop. And I, for whatever reason, <laughs> as a very sheltered white girl in a suburb of Cleveland was relatively up on the cool music <laughs> that was coming out of New York and LA. And I loved, I loved dancing to beats. I loved it. So I was looking forward to this, like for the most part, at least as far as the planning went. And then I thought, I'll just, you know, bite my teeth and white knuckle it through the grating and then I'll be over, <laughs> you know? So we plan this whole thing. We pick a song. I, I to this day, I've, I've forgotten all the steps. I've forgotten the music we did it to. 
because the part that I, I, I think I'll always remember sort of has created all the other details to, or caused all the other details to fade in the periphery of my memory. And so at some point after we had picked the song and the steps that we were going to do, we, one of the girls in the group had the idea like, okay, before we practice this together, I think everyone should dance it individually for the rest of the group so that we can like get practice doing it alone before we do it together. Like that made sense. In hindsight, maybe it was also a way to size each other up, <laughs> but it made sense. And I was excited. I offered to go first. And as I went into this experience, right, I, looking back, realize now, like, I had a lot of presumptions that I think most people, no matter what age they are, have when it comes to doing anything artistic, whether it's dancing, singing, acting, painting, and, and I'm talking about classically artistic here, right? You know, you all have the, who have been listening to this podcast for some time know that my framework for artistry is a much wider net, right? I, I personally believe that a target cashier can be an artist when it comes to the way that they interact with people. Um, and that's an episode for another time. <laughs> but when I, we're talking about classically interpreted art forms, I think most people, no matter if they're children all the way up to seniors, come into making things as novices, they come in with this set of presuppositions about those modalities. And one of them is that it's natural, right? Like that it's magic, <laughs> that it flows, right? I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of adults sign up for an art class. What sounds more lovely than spending an evening with paints and pencils and markers you know after a long day of work you just come and you hang out with people and you socialize maybe have some wine and you just magically create beauty <laughs> that sounds amazing I think that's what a lot of people are signing up for when they take any type of creative class for example and then they get in there and it's not natural in fact, in some instances, initially out of the gate, it's ugly. I, I talk a little bit about the ugly middle in the last episode, but it also can be ugly in the beginning, middle, and end. <laughs> it can bring up a tremendous amount of wounding because art is inherently medicinal in any form. And nobody signs up for an art class expecting to face childhood trauma, for example. <laughs> I talk about this in a little bit in Making Art with Something Bigger, an art baby. Um, those episodes are from earlier in the year. I, you know, these are all things that are deeply integrated with the creative process, no matter what kind of art you're doing. But I was 12 and I never had really danced in front of anybody and bef anybody before. I just did it in my bedroom when I was listening to cassette tapes. And it had always gone really smoothly there. I always felt really good, you know. And so I had every expectation that I was going to be able to do this series of steps with the same fluidity that I freestyled in my room, you know. And as all of you know, 
nothing could have been further from the truth. From the second the music started, I looked ridiculous. Like, it wasn't that I just looked clumsy. It was that I couldn't even do it. I couldn't even follow it. There was no part of the next three minutes or however long the song was that I was remotely successful. And I don't even think I'm actually fairly certain I didn't go the whole three minutes. I just stopped and begged them to turn the music off. And in some worlds, you know, that would have been a time where a bunch of young women would have rallied around me and told me that it was going to be okay and that they were going to support me and we were going to figure it out together. My particular experience wasn't that world. Um, immediately, most of them began to laugh. Um, and I think looking back on it, probably out of fear, right? None of us were excited about this. Suddenly to their like horror, they realized that one of the girls in their group was absolutely terrible at dancing and was this going to reflect badly on them? And And I'll never forget, like, you know, it was just a knife to the heart for sure. Like, I don't know... As I'm speaking this story now, I'm certain everyone listening to this has a version of this. It may not be connected to classically um, thought about art, but we all have something that we put our heart and soul into. We imagine that we should be good at it and then we're not and we get ridiculed and that's deeply painful. And these are things that get carried with us into adulthood for sure. And that the, the laughing would have been enough, but then... And this is the thing that I've, I, for a long time, remembered like as clear as it was happening in the, the present moment. One of my friends, my close friends, who lived right around the corner, I had grown up with her, I had swam in her pool, I had had sleepovers with her house, like, she looked me dead in the eye and she said, you should, and she said these exact words, like, I, I'm fairly certain it was these exact words, she said, you shouldn't be dancing. And it makes sense that she would have said it that way because that phrase is deeply embedded in our culture, not just with dancing, but with so, so many things, especially when it comes to artistry. You know, when I was in school in my undergrad, learning about the different age levels and developmental stages of art making. We learned the age that children decide if they're good at art or not. And it's eight, eight years old. (laughs) And for, for that reason, most people who don't continue into art making of any kind, kind of freeze at the third grade level. And if you ask them to draw or paint or any, or sing or whatever it is, Um, Unless they've continued those things, they operate at kind of like a third grade level, which weirdly made me pretty good at teaching adults (laughs) because I also taught third graders. Um, And what, what a bummer, isn't it? And so that phrase, you shouldn't be doing this thing, reaches kids pretty early in, in who knows what manner. It's just very pervasive in the culture, explicitly and implicitly. Those messages are, are sent out <laughs> wide and far. 
And by the time kids are in third grade, they've all received that that messaging of some kind. And for me, it was in reverse when it came to artistry, like when it came to drawing. I remember my first grade teacher sending a letter to my mom when I was six years old saying, your daughter is good at this. She should be getting some type of formal training outside of school if she's interested in it. And I absorbed that message early. Like, I should be doing this. I should be drawing. And so then it made sense that the reverse would be true. Like, I couldn't follow a beat. I couldn't do the steps. So, I mean, it made sense to me. As much as it hurt, like, it made sense I shouldn't be dancing. Like, dancing is for people that do things in this classical framework of beauty, right? Like, can you do steps? Like, can you hit a beat? Like, then you're a dancer. And if you can't do those things, then you shouldn't be dancing. And so that was, that was it. (laughs) So three weeks ago, (laughs) I, as a 42 year old woman, am in an indoor cycling class at a South Austin LA fitness. This is a class that I've been taking since I was pregnant with Brayden a few years ago. I love the instructor. I've gotten to know a lot of the regulars that ride in this class. They've become friends. I've seen them outside of class from time to time. It's one of my favorite rituals during the week. And I was warming up on a bike before class started. And there was a woman next to me in her late fifties who loves, loves, loves Zumba. And she was talking to another student who I happen to know pretty well about Zumba and they were chittering and chattering. And student three says to student two, (laughs) I'm student one. I kind of want to do Zumba with you. Like, is that cool? Is it cool if I like come in a couple days when you do Zumba? And student two is like, yeah. And I'm hearing all of this and I feel and I've, I talk about this a little bit in Making Art with Something Bigger from the fall of last year. Often we are, I believe, artistically co-collaborating with something invisible, something we can't see but is very much conscious and very much has our best interest at heart and very much wants us to do things that will make our soul happy. And I felt it, like I felt it well up in my heart, like, yes, you know, I wanted to do it. And... And so I, of course, it it felt like the perfect timing. Like these are two women that I like, that I know, that are making this arrangement together. And so I say, hey, me too. And of course, then they were so excited and so thrilled. And, And I was excited and I was thrilled. And so it's a Tuesday night. Zumba's on Thursday. I'm like, cool, I can't wait. And then as I'm driving home from from indoor cycling that night, I remember, (laughs) I remember that I actually shouldn't be dancing. And for those of you that aren't familiar with Zumba, it's aerobic dancing. (laughs) And it's not like side to side step. It's not step class, right? It's not like stepping. (laughs) It's like shaking your booty and cha-cha and like salsa and all the, all the, the things all the things I shouldn't be doing. And it, in some ways, was really beautiful that I had forgotten. 
I th- and and here's the reason why I think I had forgotten that I shouldn't <laughs> that I shouldn't and when I say shouldn't I'm doing air quotes here like that I shouldn't have been dancing because after that thing happened when I was 12 I I carried that deeply in the forefront of my conscious mind for a decade like absolutely never danced and it was interesting because it was during that time because then I stopped dancing like I didn't even dance in the privacy of my own room you know I because I stopped all dancing my subconscious began to like freak out a little bit and I began to like I'd be like I remember when I became old enough to drive and I was like driving around with like my choice of music on my brain would instantly go into fantasies of being like a famous hip-hop dancer and I would perseverate on it and like go into these great detailed narratives in my mind about how cool I was it was very interesting y'all um and so like that was kind of the space I existed in with dancing and then in after my undergrad, I moved to Miami, Florida with a friend for a couple of years. I've talked about this very fondly. It was a very formative time for me. And while I was there, one of the really important formative experiences I had was being a minority. I was truly, truly in Miami. If you are a Midwesterner from Ohio, you are a minority. I often would go out in the evenings with coworkers um, I was waiting tables at the Four Seasons uh, on the, the Biscayne Bay, and we would often work until like 11 p.m. And then we would like go to s- hang out in someone's apartment or go to like a late night place for drinks. And I would be sitting with a group of people speaking Spanish, <laughs> and I would be like, "Hey, hey!" And they literally told me over and over again, "You need to learn Spanish." Sorry, <laughs> it was very humbling and important and and I did by the way you know it's kind of crazy how quickly your brain will pick up on receptive language if that's all you're around (laughs) and one night we were all together at someone's apartment having wine and playing cards I remember there were cards out on the table and someone put on some salsa music and they began I mean this is people from South America Mexico Cuba Puerto Rico, like this is all the population of Miami. This is very much something they would do for fun. Like this isn't something you see happening in Ohio where I'm from. People just busting out salsa in the living room of an apartment at two in the morning, you know? And one of the guys grabs my hands and I immediately ice up and pull my hand back. And he kind of looks at me like, and I'll never forget, he gives me this look like, oh, you poor thing. (laughs) (laughs) like who hurt you (laughs) you know because dancing isn't just for a select few in latin culture everyone is a dancer (laughs) everyone and i tell him i say look no like trust me i and i say the thing to him that i've had like i say a version of the thing to him that i've heard art students say to me when they take a beginning drawing class, they say, hey, just so you know, I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. <laughs> and it's supposed to be funny, but really it's like, oh, like who hurt you? <laughs> you know? And so I say to him, I have two left feet. I truly do. Like, I know you think you can help me, but I'm unhelpable. 
And he says, no, 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 I promise you like this. And he's coming from this place of this is your birthright. Like this is your birthright. There is no way I'm going to let you out of this. And so he like, everyone gets quiet. By this point, the entire group is quiet. They're like listening to us talk. He puts his hands up. He's like, just follow me. And he turns on the music. And there's a brief moment where I think I can do this. And after about 30 or 40 seconds, he looks at me and he goes, okay, maybe, maybe we should stop. (laughs) And it was like the knife that had been in my heart just got turned a little bit. And I was like, what was I thinking? And I remember, I remember having the thought in my head, what was I thinking? Like I knew better, you know, shame on me for thinking that this was going to be any different than when I was 12, you know, and it just further solidified the wound that you know you're just just stop just stop (laughs) quit quit doing this to yourself and everybody else and just own the truth it's like you're not a dancer it's okay right you're not a dancer any more than you're not a rocket scientist and you know it's not like hurting your heart that you're not working for NASA like you know what what's the deal right like this is the stuff that I'm saying to myself to negotiate this pain that I'm feeling And I'm pretty sure that if the story ended there, I would never in a million years have considered going to Zumba class three weeks ago. But it didn't end there. A few years later, I moved back to Ohio. I took a job teaching art at a local elementary school. And because (laughs) public school teachers are wholly underpaid and still are, especially in the first years that they teach, I had to take a second job to pay my bills uh, waiting tables a few nights a week. And there was a coworker of mine at the restaurant I worked at named John. And John was Guatemalan. He, and his life story perfectly set him up to help me in a way that I'm not sure if anyone else could have. John was adopted when he was a baby by a white couple in Kansas City, and they were both incredibly intelligent. His dad was like a heart surgeon or something bananas, and his mom worked at a university. They were very intellectual, very, very intelligent. And from an early age, John absorbed this idea that he knew his parents loved him very much, but that he was so different from them. He was incredibly passionate, creative, really charismatic, could be make friends with anybody, excellent dancer, right? Like tons of passion. And, you know, like when it came to book smarts and getting certain grades, he really struggled and, and he could feel the way that he was letting down his incredibly intelligent parents, but you know, he was so different and that, and that became a wound for him over time of having his gifts just completely unappreciated. And one night he asked for a ride home. He didn't have a car. I was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. We leave, we leave the restaurant and I have some type of like mix playing on in my car as we're driving. And to this day, I remember the song and I'm going to play it at the end of this episode. <laughs> um, it came on. And John immediately was like, yes. You know, when someone hears their, like, hears a jam and they're like, fuck, you know, yes. And they turn it up and they start moving in the car. Like, 
And so he starts doing that and, you know, I don't. (laughs) And he does a similar thing as the guy in Miami. You know, he kind of looks at me and he's like, hey, like, this is a jam. What's your deal? And I was like, yeah, no. And by this point, I'm like 27, 28. And now the wounding I have around dancing is pretty significant. And so when I tell him, yeah, no, there's an edge in my voice, like fucking back off. Don't even, don't even do that shit with me. I, you know, (laughs) and it was, I'll never forget the reason I remember this experience and why it was so important in my life is not because of what happened or anything that he said, but it was what happened to his energy. The minute that I told him to back off, I felt his energy go, oh, I know. Like it was so, it was like a me too energy, right? Like the me too movement is so controversial, I I think. And I personally have a lot of beliefs about why it shouldn't be controversial and it should be so normalized, but that's for also another episode. (laughs) But I think one of the reasons why the me too movement was so powerful is that me too, not just as a phrase, but as an energy is incredibly healing like the minute I felt him go he didn't say anything by the way this was completely nonverbal. I just felt his energy go oh girl I know I fucking I know your pain I it was instantly healing for me like I just instantly like my guard went down and he said whoa 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 and he's like let's start the song over he like hits pause and he's like okay I'm going to hit play and we're not going to do any freaking thing except bounce to the downbeat. And I was like, here we go again. Like, here's this person that thinks they can like teach me to be a dancer when I'm clearly not right. This narrative is so deeply in me. I'm, you know, decades into my life at this point, he turns on the song and he starts to just one, two, one, two. And he's like, come on, Bradley, one, two, you got it. It's just one, two. That's literally it. And for the next four and a half minutes or whatever, that was all we did. And I did it in sync with him. And he didn't talk about it any further than that. Like about 30 seconds into the one, two, he changed the subject and we bounced to the beat of this song while talking about some freaking thing from the restaurant that night. And he, and then, and then it was over. The song ended and he didn't mention it again. The gift was profound in that moment. The gift was the, the gift was a reconnection to what dancing is fundamentally and it was a reframing of the wound that had happened with me here's what I mean when I say that I believe especially after sort of reflecting on those experiences now now in my fourth decade of life (laughs) I now believe that a lot of wounding happens at the intersection of where artistry is fundamentally a medicine that belongs to everybody, that is everybody's birthright, hence the reason why all of us feel like this should be simple, this should be natural, because 
when we're talking about art as medicine, whether it's drawing as medicine, dancing as medicine, acting as medicine, singing as medicine, cutting hair as medicine, mowing a lawn as medicine, whatever, (laughs) it is our birthright. It is natural. It is easy. And when we're talking about art as a capitalist process that is funneled through (laughs) filters of a market economy, other people's um, perceptions of beauty or worthiness, of institutional pressure, financial pressure, none of those types of art making are natural, even in the slightest. They are 100% connected to performance and we often refer to that as talent and and often skill you know the problem is that we live in a society that has become so seduced by that type of artistry that it deeply wounds people when they can't make things in that specific way and it completely segments like segregates them from their the roots of artistry, which is medicinal shit, right? Like, I think it's why my friend in Miami was so mortified that I didn't dance because he was like, this is how I, people from Latin culture is like, that's how they heal themselves. They go out and dance and sweat their asses off and they feel spirit Even if they wouldn't call it this, I believe that a huge part of Latin culture's love of dance is feeling spirit move in their bodies, right? Like making art with something bigger, you know, that's deeply healing to our souls, right? Like after a night of dancing, I mean, for those of you that have done it after a night of dancing medicinally, (laughs) not in a freaking class where you're memorizing steps, Like dancing medicinally, don't you feel alive, more alive? Yes, because there's an energy that runs through you that is so profoundly healing. That is everyone's birthright. For someone to say you shouldn't be dancing, it's in some ways violent. From my perspective, it's a violent thing to say. And I've I've come to really believe this about every art form. And for me, as a a teacher of drawing, it's why I began doing intuitive drawing classes, which, by the way, we are going to be offering again in the fall, so stay tuned. (laughs) Um, Drawing is your birthright. And for some of you listening, you may be like, well, that's weird because I've never wanted to draw. Cool, then don't. (laughs) Like, if... But whatever you do want to do, you should be doing it because it's your medicine, you know? And if you find yourself nodding your head like, yes, I do wish I could draw. I've always thought it would be so cool. Then, yeah, you should be drawing. Like, today. (laughs) And intuitive drawing is an excellent inroad to doing that. By the way, the 2020 on-demand version of intuitive drawing is still available on my website, BeccaJBurley.com. It's offered at a discount because it's going to go away soon. So if you're interested in, in drawing as medicine, you should absolutely check that out. Um, so 
this thing happens with John and I'm like, oh yeah, fuck you and your ideas about dancing, like, like, like that I have to be dancing from the stars, <laughs> right? In order to do this. And And then I didn't think about it again. Like, I still didn't really dance, y'all. And I still continued to fantasize about being an amazing dancer. But the wounding went away. And I really believe that's why I suddenly made it to 42 years old. And I was like, yeah, I'll do a Zumba class. And then I'm driving home and I'm like, oh, no. Like, the last time I had an even remotely positive experience with moving my body was in a Chevy Cavalier in Ohio 15 years ago like no, what was I thinking you know but I've committed to doing it I really want to do it and by this point in my life I know for me that you don't ignore the thing that's bigger right and the thing that's bigger than me clearly let me know you need to do this like this is important so I show up Thursday evening and the friend that I'm with like the, the the friend that has never done Zumba either is the most lovely energy to be doing this with she's incredibly excited she actually has a, a background in theater and so she has some experience with dancing and singing um, but also feels kind of nervous too <laughs> and I come in with butterflies, but shockingly low amounts of butterflies considering. And this woman walks in who is our instructor. And she's, I come to find, about to retire from the Austin Police Department, (laughs) y'all. She might be 110 pounds soaking wet. She's super tiny. And she has the energy, she has all the energy that you would imagine a tiny 60-something Austin police woman to have. <laughs> like, she's she's not fucking around, okay? And she sees... At, I'm not sure if I imagined this, but probably not. She scans the room. She sees at least two new students who've never done Zumba with her before. But more than that, I think she feels the energy of me, definitely. <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to fake it, right? Like I'm holding myself confidently, shoulders back, chin up, smiling, laughing with my friend. Like, yeah, I'm fucking, yeah, I'm a dancer. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and also, she's been, I come to find she's been teaching Zumba for 30 years. I'm not fooling her. <laughs> and so she starts, she does this little intro um, with our class this particular day that I've never seen her do since, which by the way, I've been doing Zumba every week since, um, multiple times a week ever since. And I haven't heard her give this spiel to any of those other classes, but she gave the spiel on my first day. And I really believe it's because she could tell I was freaking out. (laughs) And she says, okay, here's the thing. I'm doing like, we're not learning steps. (laughs) We're not practicing the technical stuff here. I'm just going to do stuff and you're just going to do it too. And if you can't follow along, just shake your ass and smile and have fun and don't leave. She said, let me repeat myself. These are the four things. Shake your ass, smile, have fun, don't leave. 
I'm going to lock the door. And I was like, what? And I turned to my friend and, and she laughs and the instructor says, no, I'm kidding. I'm not going to lock the door, but for real, don't leave, just stay. And I, I'm certain she wouldn't have viewed it necessarily in this framework, but what she did was she said in a roundabout way, we're not technically dancing in here. This is medicinal fucking dancing. (laughs) And if you have any preconceptions of being Shakira, you can, you can let it go. At least as far as the technical abilities of Shakira. (laughs) But when it comes to Shakira energy, yeah, that you definitely have in spades, even if you've never danced before, and I'm going to help you channel it. And she turns the music on, you know, like, and it was like, this is the part of the movie where I get to tell you that everything worked out, right? Like, this is the part of the story where everything kind of clicked into place, where my experience as a 12-year-old and then as a 23-year-old and then as a 27-year-old, all of it kind of came to this point. And I had the most luscious time. I was so profoundly moved by the experience. I got to feel the energy that people who passionately dance their whole lives get to feel. I got to feel that thing moving through me. I got to like sync my body up to it. It felt so good. I was terrible at following her steps. I was terrible at it. And and still, and, and this is when I realized what she was trying to get us to understand before we started the class. Like I would catch glimpses of myself in the mirror, completely not following her, by the way. And I looked... I kind of looked like I knew what I was doing (laughs) because moving with that thing, moving, you know, medicinal dance, medicinal movement isn't technical. You can make shit up and look good. And that's what I did for an hour. (laughs) I can't, and don't get me wrong. I, I definitely tried to practice what she was doing and I definitely tried to sync up with what she was doing. I mostly didn't. And I'm grateful to her every day since that she gave us that permission because how many of us can relate to going into a creative learning experience where the teacher was a technician and they focus on the capitalistic value of making stuff and we leave feeling deflated. This is something, by the way, that I've really struggled with as an art teacher. I teach through my website doing on-demand classes, but I also teach at the Contemporary uh, at Laguna Gloria in Austin. For those of you that live here, you know what I'm talking about? Possibly. It's a hidden gem. I feel like not nearly enough people need to know about it, and they should. It's a nature preserve on the Colorado River. It's got every type of art class you could possibly imagine between preschool and adult. So freaking beautiful there. I haven't, yeah, I've taken some time off, but I'm going to be returning soon. So stay tuned for that as well. And for a long time, I taught beginning adult drawing and art classes in general. And I remember 
for those of you that have been following this podcast and, and my work for some time, you know that for me, art is medicine, drawing is medicine, and I will teach it as such. And it's been really interesting for me to marry my philosophy around drawing as medicine with a technically marketed class, right? Like when Laguna Gloria markets their drawing classes, they're basically marketing, like you will learn how to do value and composition and perspective. And so teachers come into my class and I am teaching technical things. I am teaching them how to do things in a so-called correct way or whatever that is. (laughs) But we're doing it through an intuitive medicinal lens. And so I assertively resist um, evaluation or any type of linear evaluation. And when I say linear evaluation, what I mean is, hey, um, this thing is off. Why don't I show you the right way to do it? Right? Like I I actively resist that. And I remember... (laughs) I remember realizing at some point, I probably shouldn't teach drawing classes here anymore because it was really disconcerting for a lot of students. And I remember there was this one, you know, a lot of people that take our classes in the evening are retired, you know? And one of the things that I learned to do with all of my classes on the first day was I would have every student go around and say their name and then I would ask them to share why they took the class because it always ended up being profoundly helpful and inevitably most people had an origin story and it would and it would just take one student to, to share theirs and suddenly all of them wanted to share their origin story and it would be something like hey I was seven years old and this woman like wounded me and I never drew again and now I'm retired and I want to draw like something like that It was shocking how many people had some version of that story, some version of my dancing story, you know? So there was this man in my class and he, his energy from the, from the first day was wounded. Like he didn't share his origin story, but I knew he had one. I could feel it. I could feel the ways that he like I could feel the ways that he had some defenses up like and so it was important to me that we focus on creating a medicinal relationship with drawing right I want you to feel a love for the pencil on paper before we even remotely talk about value you know and that and that probably rightfully pissed him off and I remember by the middle of the seven week session he kind of pulled me aside and he looked at me like and he was like I just want you to give it to me straight like I can handle I remember him saying I can handle it just tell me how I suck and I will get better and what he was saying in his own way was art is this thing this thing of this perception of beauty that I have been fed by the culture and I want to be able to do it that way and I need you to show me 
and I need you to tell me how I suck and how I'm not met. And he said the word suck, which I think was so funny. He's like, I need you to tell me the ways I'm not measuring up. Like to him, that was what art was about. Was like, give it to me straight. I can, I can take it. I should say before I keep going on here that that's a valid modality for drawing. Like there are so many drawing classes like that. Most of them in university settings, a lot of them at Laguna Gloria where I teach. There, There's nothing wrong with wanting to learn art and drawing as a technical expression, as a skill to build through rigorous practice and, and through, you know, exercises, uh, shading over and over and shape over and over. Like there's, that is very valid. Um, but it's not my mode because my mode is the belief that art and drawing has been far too long relegated to just that. And it's been at the expense of the medicinal side. And it's the medicinal side that is our birthright. All of you listening to this, whether you draw now or have any desire to draw now, whether you dance now or have any desire to dance now, or sing or make poetry or whatever, did those things as children naturally and joyfully and easily as medicine, as a way to come home to yourself, as a way to refresh your soul, as a way to connect with something bigger. And then slowly the culture was like, that's not actually it, (laughs) right? Can you draw something realistic? Then you shouldn't be drawing if you can't, right? Like how many of us have absorbed that idea? You know, many of us. And I think this is a pretty good segue into where my student was coming from in this drawing class, which is that isn't there something of value that's lost if we make this too woo-woo or airy-fairy? Maybe some of you are wondering that or or thinking that right now, like, cool, I hear drawing as medicine and I, I get that, but like, shouldn't there be some kind of like bar where you're like yeah this is art that should be sold and and in a gallery and and then this is art that shouldn't and my answer to that is yes that yes and <laughs> so and let me elaborate one of my dear friends is an exceptional watercolorist. Her name is Jan. I'm going to link to her website in the show notes. She's excellent and a prolific, masterful watercolorist. Just her stuff hits, hits every level for me, right? It's fit. It's beautiful to the eye, but also I feel things in my nervous system when I look at her paintings. Like you're just like, what, you know? She's an exceptional teacher and she's a technical teacher. If you take a class from Jan, she is like, I think her class is like 
36 watercolor techniques and you are learning the techniques and you are learning a proper way and a not proper way and people love her classes like they're booked out like they book in like an hour like would they publish her you know her link to take a class and within hours it's full you know like she's an excellent teacher and she's an excellent artist and the other day we were at um the Dell Children's Hospital was having their um, fundraising event and I went and there was a bunch of artists there and she was there and we were talking and she was sort of reflecting on this assumption that I've been talking about in this podcast episode, which is that everyone can do art and everyone should do art and, and, and because everyone should do art and because everyone can do art, do you hear my dogs? <laughs> Probably. Um, because everyone can and should do art, then there's this energy that she ends up being on the receiving end of, which is received from her or it's felt by her as a, as a lack of honor or a lack of respect for the tremendous amount of not magic and not easefulness <laughs> that is the life of a, of a professional artist, right? Making art in her way requires more than having fun, shaking your booty and not leaving the room. <laughs> to borrow the metaphor from the Zumba class, right? Like she's working in a environment where she absolutely better be able to do X, Y, and Z if she wants to sell anything and she was sort of I wouldn't say lamenting because Jan doesn't lament <laughs> she's just so lovely <laughs> so positive and I think her energy is a huge part of why people are drawn to her work because she imbues her work with her energy but she was kind of like you know it stinks like it stinks that you know in, in some instances, my work is regarded as this thing that is just like a magical wand. And I, I can relate to the magical wand dilemma because, you know, I used to do, before I had Brayden, I was working with clients, big and small, to do art. And sometimes you would run into a client who just had this presumption that you would like go to your studio table and wave your pencil over it like a wand and it would just flow out of you in like 30 minutes and when the truth is no I'm a workhorse I'm sweating I'm making mistakes I'm crumpling up paper and starting over again and the thing about this podcast and I think one of the things that is very tricky for this market economy that we have and this capitalist culture that we have is that there's these foundational philosophies <laughs> that are very black and white. And the truth is, is that most of the really true things in this world are gray or very multifaceted. And so art, in my deeply held belief is that art can absolutely be medicine and a highly honed, masterful craft that is 
only accessible to some. Those two things absolutely coexist and they coexist easily all the time. I believe though that where our culture has gotten deeply into trouble is that we look at people like Jan and we're like, oh, I can't do that. Even if I practice my whole life, I couldn't do that. And so therefore I shouldn't be painting. I am not a painter. And that is profoundly, and excuse my language, but that is profoundly fucked up. Profoundly. It is, it has severed this massive number of people from this profoundly healing experience through all kinds of artistry, whether it's drawing, dancing, poetry, whatever, whatever. I believe in my heart of hearts that every single person on this planet should be profound, profoundly, I keep using that word today, don't I? That should be voraciously, regularly, emphatically, joyously making art in whatever way they choose every day, like all the time. That if we had a medicinal relationship with art, maybe, you know, in, in some ways, maybe like Latin cultures with dance, we would have a different planet overnight, wouldn't we? The, and I've mentioned this before, but it bears mentioning again here that ancient Greeks and Romans had this beautiful perspective on this and it's kind of gotten lost over time, but they really believed that science was the study of the physical world, things that you can experience with the five senses, right? And it wasn't until quantum science came about in the early 20th century that we started to have a form of science that was exploring things outside of the five senses, you know? Prior to quantum science, that was the realm of art, and it still is, right? The Greeks and Romans really believed that artistry was the exploration and the research and the study and the healing of our inner worlds, right? And in science was healing the outer world. Like we've, I mean, think about the healing in medicine that we've had because of science, right? Can we, can we see that same level of healing happening through our art making? I don't, I don't think on as broad of a scale. I don't. And I think a huge part of the reason why is because of things like Borelli, you shouldn't be dancing. I have been to Zumba like five times in the past three weeks. I'm going again on Thursday this week. And I have to tell you, it is profoundly changing me. And that's interesting because prior to that, I... I have this this channel with drawing that is fluid and very easy. Like I've long said to people, like I wish I could like 
encapsulate or gift wrap the relationship I have with drawing and then apply it to every other relationship I have with my husband, with my son, with my friends, with my parents, because my relationship with drawing is the healthiest relationship I have. It's the closest thing to perfect that I have in my life. And it in that's one of the inspirations for this podcast is the way that our relationship to art can be a phenomenal uh, metaphor, inspiration, help in the ways that we create our life artwork, you know, and I've used a lot of the healthy relationship aspects I have with drawing to heal aspects of my art in my life, <laughs> my life art, <laughs> my life artwork. Um, and so, you know, you would think, I, you know, Borelli has this amazing channel with drawing. Like, why would she need anything else? And I actually thought that too for a really long time. And what I'm learning is that there is something about moving my body artistically that is healing the crap out of my insides. And I have no idea how to put words to that experience I can just tell you that I leave Zumba class and I go home feeling lighter inside in a specific way that I don't get in any other context and in my whole 42 years on this planet when John sat with me in the car that day and had me do the one, two, one, two. He understood the wound because he had been wounded in his own unique way and was able to deeply connect with me. And he was able to do the perfect thing for me because he knew and applied what would have also been the perfect thing for him. This is the way that artistic living is profoundly creative, right? Art is a wound turned into light, right? John had a wound and he, and he literally used the wounding in him to shed light on mine. This is an interesting metaphor. By the way, that quote, I didn't make that up. That's from George Brock, who's a painter. And he's not the only one to use a similar comparison, right? Uh, Leonard Cohen famously in one of his songs said, you know, the cracks are how the light gets in, right? The wounds in us, the cracks in us are how healing gets inside. This idea that healing and wounding is artistic feels a little bit weird, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it feel counterintuitive to think of wounding as artistic? And I suspect most people listening to this, even though it it does feel counterintuitive and even though you might be nodding your heads to that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't we all think of a moment in our life where with given enough perspective, we see the ways that some of our greatest wounds led led way to our greatest art forms. Um, Dr. Joe Dispenza has talked about this. For those of you unfamiliar with his work, he 
is a fascinating dude. Like in the, in the 90s, he started sharing research on the ways that the human brain and, and conscious thought processes could heal very complex traumas. He talked about the way that he healed his spine after a bike accident using meditation, like very rigorously and consciously for years. <laughs> and he was 100% written off as a quack in the 90s. And, and slowly, through force of will, has now, in the 2020s, found himself being invited to the head of the Cleveland Clinic's Functional Medicine podcast, right? Like really, really reputable people in medicine are listening to this guy now because medicine is starting to see the ways that healing is so much more artistic than they ever could have imagined. And I was listening to him talk in an interview once and he said something that is perfect for this episode topic. He said, the opposite of creativity isn't consumption. He said, we're used to thinking of those two things as opposites. He said, I don't believe that. He said, I believe the opposite of creativity is victimization. And here's why. He said, creativity is saying, this thing over here doesn't have power over me. And it could be so many things, y'all. This canvas over here doesn't have power over me. (laughs) I will put onto it what I want, right? That's like a very simple, straightforward example. In the instance of dancing, Zumba became profoundly artistic because it was me saying, hey, you know, Tiffany from the seventh grade, (laughs) your ideas about dancing don't have power over me. Like, I'm not a victim of that anymore. Now I'm a creator. This is this is where art as medicine becomes so transformative because when we're making things medicinally, we're not just putting colors on paper. I mean, yes, we are. And yes, it can be very beautiful and very pleasant just in and of itself, right? We don't have to make art like this big ordeal, right? Like it can just be for the pleasure in and of itself, and that's it, and we can be done with it, you know? And it's an and, both and get to be true. And even if that's how you enjoy making things, it doesn't change the fact that at this very deep level, you are healing stuff and you are becoming powerful, very powerful over all manner of things. You know, it could be powerful over a canvas. It could be powerful over 12-year-old crap all the and, and everything in between, right? This is, this is really fundamentally how I've come to view art making in all, in all aspects. <laughs> and I'm ready for the culture to catch up. And, and the culture is catching up. 
there is so much fresh new understanding about the power of art making that even just a few decades ago was non-existent, right? Like just a few decades ago, art was about skill and technical growth and mastery. And if you weren't those things, just stop it, right? <laughs> and we, we are moving into an era where if you want to express yourself in any number of creative modalities, you can go on Google and you can find something in your local area and you can do it. You can do it. And Zumba is an amazing example of that. Zumba started in the 90s. <laughs> and it was some people saying, why can't this passion for Latin dance be medicine for everybody, you know? And, and they made that happen and it became this wildly popular program that gyms all across the world have adopted and has no, I don't get the sense, has any sign of slowing down. <laughs> at, at LA Fitness, the by and far the, the largest number of classes offered there are Zumba classes because they always fill up. It's freaking fun and you sweat and you feel lighter in your soul afterwards. And that is special in this world. This world, we are in a we are in a spot. I I don't care who you are listening to this, we are in a spot right now. My <laughs> I have a friend who recently left a pretty abusive job that he'd had for many, many years and, and got a new job working in this incredibly supportive, loving climate. And he was texting with me the other day and he said, I, I, I feel like I'm still on the defense. Like, I feel like I'm not able to trust the amazingness of this new job yet. And I replied and I said, yeah, you know what that makes me think about is when I was a school teacher and school would end in May or in early June and it would take me a full six weeks until the middle of July to let down my defenses that I had had to hold in my space throughout the school year just to like survive. And then the second six weeks of summer, I actually enjoyed. And most teachers would talk about this. Like this is a very common experience across all teaching fields, you know, like that there's this period of time that we need to heal stuff. <laughs> and he replies back to me and he goes, heck, six weeks? He goes, how about six years? Can we all get like six years to rec to recuperate after COVID and climate crisis? And, you know, he starts listing all the things. And yeah, yeah, like this is stuff that's weighing on everybody right now. Like, and I, I think it can feel really isolating. Sometimes I'll be like really feeling the weight of the world and I feel so alone in that. And then I talk to any single person anywhere and I realize, oh, they literally feel this too. This is a heavy time to be on the planet. There's a lot going on. And what do we desperately crave more than ever in circumstances like that? Some reprieve on our souls. <laughs> And art is needed more than ever for that reason. We don't need more art that wins awards. And, and, and I, I immediately, as, as soon as I say those words, I immediately want to check myself because 
there are so many artists right now who might be listening to this who love competition, who, you know, get so much joy out of submitting artwork to competitions, you know, um, and that's, that's the thing about this world is that we're all here to do it in our way. And there is so much beauty to competitive art making, right? Just in the same way that there's so much beauty in competitive sportsmanship. Like we get LeBron James because of competition. We get to see people like him because of competition. And that type of artistry is functioning in its own very valuable way that doesn't have to do with this podcast episode. We're not talking about that right now. We're talking about artistry as serving the souls of people as a way to move the planet forward. And that type of artistry is profoundly medicinal. And we, I really believe that to the extent that we can reconnect to that is to the extent that we are moving ourselves and the planet forward. Wounding is so artistic. It is, it is so artistic. And, and I suppose some people might even think as they hear me say that, like, it, it can feel, and I know it has felt this way for me, it can feel like a disrespect to the wound, Right? It, it can feel like, oh, well, I guess it was a good thing that 12-year-old Becca got her heart stabbed in half because it's informed her professional life in this incredibly positive way for others as an adult. I mean, yeah, but here is the beauty of the both and. Both and exist. That was so messed up. In a different world, it should never have happened, right? 12-year-old Becca should have been able to dance imperfectly to her heart's content without a single speck of judgment. And, and that wounding was a huge origin story for my artistry later in life. And if it hadn't have happened, I'm, you know, my artistry probably wouldn't have happened in this way either. Art is a wound turned into light. Stay tuned for intuitive drawing courses, y'all. They're coming your way in the fall. We're about to announce the beginnings of them in July. And stay tuned for, for my happy dancing song in the car with John. It's coming at you right now. Until next time, peace.
let me go I'm on my knees while I'm begging Cause I don't wanna lose I got my arms all spread I hope that my heart gets fed Matter of fact, I'm begging